Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, and how to front run the opportunity. I'm Ryan Sean Adams. I'm joined by David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. David, Vitalik on the podcast. Again, another cannot miss episode. What did we talk about? We talked about legitimacy, this invisible force that Vitalik has named as legitimacy that we are exploring in today's podcast. And we go through the ways that the concept of legitimacy impacts our lives, uh, our lives as individuals and our lives as part of a greater society. And Vitalik makes the claim that legitimacy is one of the world's most powerful forces. And as a society, we don't really talk about it, Uh, but it really guides uh, a lot of our day-to-day lives. And it's even more true in the cryptocurrency space. And I think the fact that legitimacy is one of the the most powerful forces in the cryptocurrency space is perhaps why this space is so revolutionary. It answers the questions as to why this industry is so bottom up, why this industry is by the people for the people, because the people are enabled to bestow legitimacy on the things that they see are good. Uh, And so we talk about a number of different subjects, both in and outside of the world of cryptocurrency, where legitimacy really has the reins as to what is true and how the world moves forward. Uh, And so really enjoy this conversation with Vitalik Buterin, as always. Yeah, I guess, you know, I'd say a couple of things that's really impressed upon me with this episode. I I feel like if you don't understand the concept of legitimacy, even if you don't call it legitimacy, you don't really understand what's going on in crypto Mm -hmm. because legitimacy is really the answer to so many of the questions, like even basic questions. David, why is cryptocurrency trading over $2 trillion, Mm -hmm. right? When it grew like, you know, 11 to 12 years ago is when it started. How did we come this far? The answer, legitimacy. Mm-hmm. Why are NFTs valuable? Why was a Beeple NFT, why did that sell for $68 million? Answer, legitimacy. Mm-hmm. How come when I um, like try to fork a Bitcoin, how come you can't fork your own Bitcoin, create your own mm-hmm. alternative? How come I can't do it? How come there is only one Bitcoin? Answer, legitimacy. Why do we have confidence that Ethereum's monetary policy won't change in the direction of increasing inflation, but only will change in the direction of decreasing inflation? Answer, legitimacy. Like, mm-hmm. it's kind of the answer. It's almost like the theory of everything for crypto. And until you understand it, um, like I don't know that you have comprehensive answers to all of these most common questions. Vitalik said, it's legitimacy all the way down. I think he's right. Yeah, and we can even go all the way back into history, modern history, and talk about the current situation going on in Russia with Alexei Navalny. But we can go all the way back to just very historical, primal examples of how humans choose to coordinate and how legitimacy is like this emergent, higher order of of acceptance of society and how when everyone chooses the same outcome, that outcome is bestowed with legitimacy. And we can kind of build our social organizations upon that initial kernel of legitimacy. And that initial kernel of legitimacy carries on forwards into the future and gains legitimacy every step of the way. So while it is extremely apt for the world of crypto, it also helps answer so many of the other questions that I think are really confusing to people today in modern society. Like, why is the left and the right in America have so much strife between them? Why do we distrust institutions? Illegitimacy has a hand in answering, I think, every modern day social question. Yeah. So Vitalik is like, again, part 
<laughs> part technical mind, part philosopher, part anthropologist, just mm-hmm. has a fantastic lens on legitimacy. So he was the perfect guest to explain it. And he wrote a fantastic post that we based this episode on. So that is the bulk of the conversation. You're not going to want to miss it. We also, toward the end, we talked about Vitalik's thoughts on ultrasound money on mm-hmm. ether issuance. I thought that was a definitely stay tuned for that. That was a, a very interesting part of the conversation. And we ended in uh, him giving us a snapshot of time. Ethereum in 2021, what is in store for it as a network? Will it become a global store of value reserve asset? He even reflected on that too. So this is an episode you do not want to miss. David and I are giving some more have some more conversation about this episode in the debrief. So if you are a premium subscriber, you should already have access to that at shows.banklesshq.com. So with that, we want to thank the sponsors that made this episode possible. MetaMask is your go-to wallet for the bankless journey. If you're going bankless, you need MetaMask, period. Browser and mobile, get them both. This is your tool to unlock the world of DeFi. Here's my favorite part. Now you can swap tokens directly in MetaMask with a single swipe. This has got to be the easiest way to trade Ethereum tokens. Choose a token you own, a token to exchange it with, and get your quotes. If you like what you see, you hit swap. That's it. What makes swaps so useful is what happens behind the scenes. It compares DEXs, aggregators, and market makers to find you the best price with the lowest network fees and the least slippage. This means you can swap a wider range of tokens, and swaps can even automatically split up your trade to give you access to better liquidity. You don't even have to think about it. Try it out. Download MetaMask for desktop or mobile now at MetaMask.io and start swapping. Balancer is DeFi's most powerful automated market maker. Typical AMMs just have two tokens inside of one liquidity pool, which can lead to fractured liquidity across the many pairs in DeFi. With Balancer, you can access the full power of multiple tokens inside of one single AMM, which unlocks an entirely new playing field of possibility. This makes Balancer an awesome building block for so many different use cases. Balancer pools can make asset indexes, but instead of paying fees to portfolio managers, Balancer lets you collect fees from traders who use your portfolio for liquidity. Additionally, Balancer smart pools can be programmed to have properties that change according to predetermined rules, such as changing the swap fee based on market conditions, or even liquidity bootstrapping pools, which can help you launch and distribute your token with day one liquidity. At Bankless, we used a liquidity bootstrapping pool to sell our BAP t-shirts to much success. Balancer V2 brings powerful new features that makes your money work even harder for you. In V2, idle tokens are capable of generating yield in DeFi without sacrificing liquidity in the pool. To top things off, Balancer is reimbursing gas costs with BAL rewards, meaning that your gas fees are reimbursed up to the cost of the transaction with the Balancer governance token. Balancer's mission is to become the primary source of liquidity in DeFi by providing the most flexible and powerful platform for asset management and decentralized exchange. Dive into the Balancer pools at pools.balancer.exchange today. All right, welcome, Bankless Nation. We have Vitalik Buterin back on the podcast. And Vitalik, you recently wrote a piece titled The Most Important Scarce Resource is Legitimacy. And we are going to be talking a lot about legitimacy today on this episode. Vitalik, welcome back to Bankless. How are you doing today, sir? Thank you. Um, I'm doing great. And it's uh, good to be back on Bankless, the uh, greatest uh, Ethereum podcast at CM. Wow. Wow. You heard it here, folks. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> it was a TM. I want to know who has the TM though. <laughs> Hopefully that is uh, is settled on Ethereum and not in the nation state. Right? That's what we do on Bankless. Vitalik, you started off your blog post illustrating this massive difference between Ethereum and Bitcoin security budgets versus how much each of these respective systems allocates towards research and development expenses. You said Bitcoin is paying miners $38 million in block rewards plus $5 million more in fees per day. And Ethereum is, is doing $19.5 million in block rewards plus $18 million in transaction fees per day, all going to security, which is a necessary expense. But you juxtapose this with how much the Ethereum Foundation has to, to spend on research and development, which is just $30 million per year. And you do a similar compare and contrast versus like the, the Bitcoin innovation expenditures as well, which is similarly very, very low versus the security budget for, for, the, Ethereum, uh, for the Bitcoin blockchain. But you didn't, you didn't do this to suggest that Ethereum and Bitcoin should find ways to direct some of their security budget to pay for human salaries for research and development, but rather as a thought experiment as to why this crazy discrepancy in funding exists and why we are okay with massively overpaying for security. So two paragraphs that I want to read out that are in the, the blog post themselves for the listeners that haven't actually read the piece. You wrote, even though we could easily identify some valuable public goods to redirect some funding to as a one-off, making a regular institutionalized pattern of such decisions carries risks of political chaos and capture that are in the long run not with it. We are faced with this interesting fact that the organisms that are Bitcoin and Ethereum ecosystems are capable of summoning up billions of dollars of capital, but have strange and hard to understand restrictions on where that capital can go. And it's a social force that underlies all sorts of extremely powerful mechanisms far beyond the blockchain space. For this reason, that will be clear in the upcoming sections of the article, I will give this powerful social force a name, legitimacy. The powerful social force that is creating this effect is worth understanding. And so Vitalik, we would love to explore the power and value of legitimacy with you today. So let's start with this very basic question. What is legitimacy? Mm. Uh, so the thought experiment uh, that I guess started the post with, right, it's basically a kind of calling attention to this uh, strange fact that like ecosystems and uh, like groups of humans more generally, they have a kind of physical ability to uh, summon up resources. Um, like each of us has the physical ability to summon up a certain number of hours of uh, effort every week. We have a certain amount of physical resources at hand and so forth. But then there also seems to be this different thing, this kind of social ability to actually summon up and direct resources toward particular tasks. And our ability to socially direct resources toward particular tasks is often kind of wildly out of sync with the physical ability to uh, direct resources that's in the hands of each individual person, right? And so in this example, like we clearly have the physical ability to summon up resources worth billions of dollars uh, potentially to any task, uh, but we uh, socially seem to have the ability to put those resources toward uh, network security, but we don't have the same ability to put those resources toward other things. And like funding re protocol research and development is one big example, right? And so you start thinking about why um, this is the case, right? And we also uh, start thinking about, well, why is uh, it the case that we have these uh, kind of socially mediated resources uh, 
in a lot of other contexts more broadly, right? So like a bit after this, I brought up this uh, case of uh, the Steam project and how Justin Sun bought up a bunch of the Steam tokens and he started using them to try to uh, kind of consolidate power and sort of do an authoritarian takeover of the Steam network. But then the community just said like, you know, no, screw you, we're going to make our own fork and we're going to delete your money in the fork, right? And the fact that this was possible um, is basically proof that, well, Actually, Justin Sun, regardless of what any ledger theoretically said, never actually owns those coins, right? Like if you own something, you have the ability to use it for whatever you want. Well, he clearly, as demonstrated by reality, did not have the ability to use those coins uh, for whatever he wanted. Uh, he, his ownership of the coins was actually kind of controlled by these unwritten social contracts that the Steam company had with the community that he then inherited when he bought Steam the company. And so... We have these situations where basically large collections of resources are controlled not by like physical force, not even by private keys and not by any kind of formal um, arrangement of individuals, but by a social contract, right? And so like this is what happens uh, in uh, the, the hands of like with say a blockchain, right? Like the Ethereum blockchain, for example, like it's clearly capable of making the decision to switch from pumping $5 million a year into proof of work to pump or 5 million ETH a year into proof of work to pumping 1 million a year into proof of stake. Um, but it would not be capable of uh, switching to pumping 1 million ETH a year into say life extension research, even though like I personally really love life extension research and lots of other people love life extension research. Uh, so like we need to just like properly think about and understand this concept. Like what does it mean for coins to be owned by social contracts um like what what is actually happening in this phenomenon how do we describe this phenomenon and if we understand this phenomenon better like it's clearly this very powerful social force that you know we could potentially even try to like apply and try to use it to fund more uh, uh, all, all kinds of uh, good things that we uh, uh, that we like uh, so then i get to this uh, concept of legitimacy right and so the idea behind legitimacy is basically that like in society in general, there's a lot of uh, cases where there's some action or there's some kind of pattern of behavior. And there's this shared accept, uh, expectation that like some pattern of behavior is something that's supposed to happen. And everyone plays their part in uh, enacting the facts that this is a pattern of behavior that's supposed to happen because like, at least in, in big part because they yeah, expect everyone else to uh, share that pattern as well, right? Uh, so like the simplest example of this is like, which side of the road do you drive on, right? And uh, I mean, for most people um, listening to this, it's, uh, you know, you'd be dr on the right side of the road, but you no, know, for some, in some places on the left side of the road. And like, there isn't really any like coherent reason why one is better than the other, but there's no right side of the road maximalist. <laughs> yeah, I guess I don't know. Maybe, maybe there are a few, but like again, to, to be honest, like I'm not really a, a car person, so I uh, yeah, like yeah, I had to think for a couple of seconds to remember like which side of the road is which. Um, but um, the but like the the point is that like even if um, you know tomorrow the police completely disappeared. 
Um, you know, there are some things that would start going wrong, but like I would predict that almost all people, like say in the United States, would just peacefully keep driving on the correct side of the road and not driving on the incorrect side of the road because they know that, you know, if they start driving on the incorrect side of the road, like that's just going against the consensus is the thing that's like is the thing that's bad both for society and for themselves. Um, like and like there's just this high cost of disrupting the consensus and it's a high cost both to the, uh, both to kind of the wider society and just a high risk to themselves personally uh, and so they just continue driving on the correct side of the road and by doing that they just sort of become part of the process of enacting this consensus and this is something that exists in a lot of social situations right so like one ex an example of this closer to home in the blockchain space is like if you look at something like the Dow fork right like there's the question of, um, you know, is was the DAO fork legitimate, right? And if you think that the DAO fork is legitimate, then what when the DAO fork is happening, then you're going to, you know, go and peacefully download the Ethereum client that implements the DAO, the DAO fork. And you're, if you run some Ethereum service, you're going to hook up that um, client to that particular, uh, or your Ethereum service to the client that implements the DAO fork. When you talk about ETH, you're going to talk about ETH as being the, co the coins that are on the DAO fork. But if you do not like recognize the uh, DAO fork as being legitimate, then you're going to do the opposite. And you're just going to keep running the client that uh, does not implement the DAO fork, right? And so this is also one of those situations where like you have a... Uh, a there are reasons to want to favor one side or the other, but there also is this uh, kind of strong overriding... Uh, pressure to sort of favor the side that um, is brought uh, everyone else broadly accepts and like this this pattern of kind of everyone watching what everyone else's expectations are and forming their own expectations based on that and like this uh, kind of pattern right of like everyone watching everyone else and this being motivated even in part because like there is even in over like this big self uh, self interest in uh, going along with the consensus like this pattern is the thing that I call legitimacy right and so like in 2016 like we found you know the Dow fork is like what was legitimate and uh, in uh, 2017 the uh, Bitcoin uh, uh, segwit for example was uh, legitimate and like. I'm using the word legitimate in this very kind of positive sense, right? This is positive as opposed to normative. Like something could be legitimate even if you don't like it, right? Like, you know, the government of North Korea is legitimate inside of North Korea because there's a pattern of acting like it is. Uh, so, but like this is the kind of like the, the social force that we're talking about, right? Like it's, uh, you know, basically which side of, uh, you know, the equilibrium could fall either way. And the question is like, which side does it fall on? And that ends up just like deciding a huge number of things in the world. Guys, uh, I, when when I read this post, it was sort of a, a missing link for me because I think legitimacy is a uh, hidden force, to use another popular podcaster's vernacular, behind so much of what happens in crypto. And it answers so many of crypto's uh, frequently asked questions. And that's why it is so important to understand what it is uh, and, uh, and to get your, your mind wrapped around this as a mental model. I think what one thing you're saying, Vitalik, is basically in, in 2016, with the Dow hard fork, there was a, 
uh, a fight for legitimacy of which is the the real mm. Ethereum, mm. quote unquote. And um, it, it seems to be the case that the real Ethereum is the Ethereum that did hard fork as a result of of mm-hmm. maybe the the market cap of Ethereum, the DeFi economy that's built on top of it, the community that the Ethereum economy has versus the Ethereum Classic fork. So that was really a, I guess, a battle, a social coordination game for legitimacy. That's how you'd frame it. Absolutely. Vitalik, just to recap and define a few things that you said uh, leading up to this is you, you talked about this the Steam blockchain versus Justin Sun uh, and, and the DAO fork. Um, and I, I want to just make sure that this concept of legitimacy is, is formally instantiated in the listener's brain, where you're saying that uh, Justin Sun didn't actually own the Steam tokens that controlled over the, the Steam blockchain, even though he had the private keys that controlled over the address that held these tokens because there was this invisible force, this hidden force that exists out there in the world, that force was allowed to influence the control over the system. Mm -hmm. And the the force of legitimacy actually put the power of ownership over the Steam ecosystem into the hands of the community and away from Justin's son. And now that this event happened, we can retroactively look at what happened and say that, well, Justin's son had the tokens, but they were removed from him by this invisible power that is legitimacy. Mm-hmm. And so while we can't feel it, while it doesn't exist anywhere, it's not tangible, there is this hidden social force out there, kind of like the dark matter of the universe, this, this hidden force of legitimacy that is directing our lives both in like both in the meat space and in the crypto space, and perhaps especially in the crypto space. Um, anything you want to add on to that? No, I think that's uh, definitely an excellent summary, and I think like the, these kinds of hidden forces are definitely um, everywhere, and they're extremely strong in the crypto space. I think because the crypto space is like really all about uh, just kind of trying to summon up value in entirely out of a conception of legitimacy in a lot of ways, right? Like the crypto space controls no physical resources. The crypto space you know, controls no legal rights. The crypto space controls no uh, guns and uh, bo- and boats. Uh, so like, you know, what gives Bitcoin the value what, uh, that it has? What gives ETH the value that it has? Like legitimacy is pretty much entirely responsible for these things. It's very much a battle for hearts and minds. It's a battle on the layer zero, sort of the the, the social layer, as we've said before. I want to prompt back to the, the original story that David opened with, just to see if we can tie that on a bow and maybe answer uh, the question of why legitimacy was such a factor there. Uh, and then we can define legitimacy, legitimacy a bit more in other contexts. But the reason that Ethereum couldn't just siphon off issuance and put it into a development fund was because we don't like there there's no legitimacy in the governance of that development fund so if you propose an EIP for instance to uh, create ethereum issuance to fund charity of your choice that would be an illegitimate use of the ethereum social contract I remember just a quick story back in 2019. Uh, this was actually sort of a, a real thing that was contemplated. We were in the depths of the 
bear market, Ethereum, there was kind of the question of, is Ethereum dead? Um, price was down, the community was discouraged. Even though we were building so much during that time, it was, it was uh, sort of a discouraging time for many being in the space. And an, an EIP was proposed to answer the question that, that you posited at the beginning of your article, which is, how do we make sure that Ethereum client development at the protocol level is funded into the future. And so EIP uh, 2025 was proposed, and the title of this EIP was Block Rewards Proposal for Funding ETH 1.X. And what it actually did was it proposed funding to a good cause, which is the future development of uh, Ethereum and Ethereum clients and the Ethereum protocol. Um, and there were a number of great people behind this. Kevin Owaki was one who uh, created a, a fantastic um, distribution mechanism, public goods funding mechanism in Gitcoin. But the difference is this is embedding some sort of issuance to some third party, unnamed third party on the base layer, which is a question of legitimacy. And at the time, I felt like um, Ethereum needed a bit of a wake-up call, a bit more of kind of a Bitcoiner mindset of what could happen if we are naive about the issue of legitimacy. I didn't call it then. And I created uh, EIP 2208 uh, as just kind of a joke. Um, I'm not sure it landed among everyone, but it, this was sort of a, a riff off of the other proposal. And I basically proposed an EIP to report uh, to award block rewards to thought leaders, people in the media space, people with great Twitter accounts. I think some in the Ethereum um, community felt like I wasn't being maybe sanctimonious enough about the EIP process. It was it was a joke, but I surfaced the joke in order to... That was the point. That was the point, uh, satire. But I surfaced the joke in order to provoke this, this very conversation. Mm. If an EIP could be proposed to siphon off issuance for development... Why couldn't it be proposed to siphon off issuance for anything? Mm. And then what's the governance process for that EIP getting passed? And it was very hard to justify the legitimacy of those things. Um, any any thoughts or, or reflections on all of that? Yeah, I think uh, let's, you definitely gave a good summary. Uh, I would say one of the things that became obvious as a result of that um, is, uh, and then here we can probably kind of go down a bit to what I talked about in the next section of the post as like where legitimacy comes from, right? Like what kinds of sources of uh, legitimacy there are. Um, and my point there is that like the legitimacy is something that can theoretically come from a lot of places, but it's really heavily dependent on like, human coordination and consensus. And so legitimacy can most easily come from like things that intuitively appeal uh, across uh, broad groups of people. Um, and so I gave a few examples, right? Like one example of a legitimacy is just legitimacy by brute force, right? Like if someone like, takes over some community or like, exerts a really strong influence in some community, even if they're not liked, if they're feared by enough people, then people kind of get into this mode where like people realize that no one else is uh, brave enough to stand up against them. And so they, and so they themselves uh, start uh, being a, uh, not being brave enough to stand against them. And like, this isn't a pattern of uh, legitimacy that everyone likes, but you know, it is still a pattern of legitimacy, right? Um, is an example of this, the nation state brute force Vitalik? Sure. Yes. So in, in many nation states are definitely an example of this. Um, a second example is um, legitimacy uh, by uh, fairness, right? And 
you know, this is a conception of legitimacy that I think you know, we all consider to be much more pro-social, right? And so something is like, gains legitimacy if it's perceived as like satisfying some intuitive conception of, you know, being fair, of not uh, unfairly favoring some groups of people over other groups of people. Um, the concept of credible neutrality that I wrote about last year, like kind of really ties into this, right? And I think this uh, gets to the core of why, like say, yeah, funding network security is uh, much more easily accepted than funding development because network security is a very cleanly defined uh, thing. And it's also a process that at least formally anyone can uh, kind of come in and participate in on a kind of formally equal terms. Uh, and so it's something that people fairly easily accept as like, yes, this is something we all agree is necessary. And yes, this is something that we all agree is not a like giveaway to a certain group of people, right? And so we're okay with funding blockchains for network security. But once uh, you start funding developments, the problem is that I think EIP 2025, it didn't just say we want to redirect 0.045 ETH per block to developers. It said we want to redirect 0.045 ETH per block or whatever the number was, maybe it was 044, um, to <coughs> this specific group of people that we consider to be the ETH 1.X team. Right. And so in order to be okay with that EIP, like you basically had to have an opinion, not just about the cause, but also about that, that particular group of people. And so that's not a very socially scalable thing to uh, try to convince people of. And that's something that uh, just does not benefit from like legitimacy by fairness at all. Right. Uh, so. Now, theoretically, like if someone had proposed it, like if Gitcoin grants quadratic funding had existed and someone had proposed Gitcoin grants quadratic funding as a recipient of that 0.044, then like maybe it would have been more successful. Um, and like maybe one could imagine, you know, a, a, a world sometime down in the future where the Ethereum ecosystem has a big enough funding crisis that people realize that, you know, public goods funding is something just needs to be expanded upon and someone suggests, um, hey, you know, like, let's take like 20% of like, say the EAP 1559 burn and direct it into Gitcoin grants. And like that actually gets accepted. Like that's something that I think the Ethereum ecosystem is far away from today. But, you know, if in the future, like there's just a large necessity for public goods on a larger scale than is possible with just people's existing funds, like that's something that conceivably the community could move to, uh, could move toward accepting and it would have an easier time accepting that than it would accepting you know hey let's give 0.045 eth per block to like Alexey Akunov's team or to even to Justin Drake's team or to my or to some team led by myself or to pretty much anything that's like organized around specific people um so that's like another example but you know, at the same time, like even even still, like the thing that has even more legitimacy is uh, instead of uh, trying to change the layer one base uh, or change the base layer is to try to do these things at higher level layers of the ecosystem, right? Because like status quo pressure itself is something that ha that has higher legitimacy at layer one than it does at layer two. Um, so that's like that, so that's legitimacy by yeah, fairness. Um, there's also legitimacy by process. Uh, so legitimacy by process basically says if a process is fair, then outputs of that process are fair. Um, there's legitimacy by performance. So if a process 
had good results in the past, then that process becomes something that gains legitimacy over time. Uh, there's legitimacy by participation. So a mechanism where people feel like they can be part of enacting the process is a mechanism that people are more, are, are likely to accept more easily. So there's all of these uh, kind of complicated concepts that uh, like affect people's perceptions of uh, what is legitimate and uh, what isn't, right? And like they interact in complicated ways, right? And like the way that public goods funding happens, um, you know, within the Ethereum ecosystem and even beyond the Ethereum ecosystem is very heavily influenced by uh, all of these things. So these are some of the sources of where legitimacy comes from. And I want to kind of quickly maybe recap some of these uh, for, for folks. So you said legitimacy by brute force. We defined that. Mm-hmm. Legitimacy by fairness. We talked about that a bit. An example of legitimacy by a process, something that, that most many listeners are familiar with, of course, is, is probably a democracy, mm-hmm. right? So if um, I have the ability to vote on a new leader every four years, uh, I'm probably less angry when the, the person I picked doesn't go through. Mm-hmm. And I'm less likely to revolt because, hey, this is just part of the process. I get to pick every four years, so does everyone else. In another four years, I'll get another shot at it. So I'm not going to lead the revolution and support you know, candidate X mm-hmm. uh, as a result. That's an example of legitimacy by process, right? Right. Now, so legitimacy by process goes from uh, processes to outcomes. The one right after that is uh, legitimacy by performance, which goes from outcomes to process, right? Uh, so I gave the example that democracy is an example of legitimacy by process. Um, successful dictatorships uh, sometimes are described as getting legitimacy by performance. Like, you know, this person ran the country for 30 or this group of people ran the country for 30 years. And like we've had six and a half percent economic growth for most of those years when the rest of the world was moving forward more slowly. And so like they gain legit, like they gain legitimacy as a process, as a result of like them being able to like achieve this outcome. I can't. Now, once again, no, uh-huh. I was going to say, I, I just can't help like weaving in some kind of crypto lessons here because I feel like um, there are many cryptocurrencies right now that get at least some short term legitimacy by performance. Um, so people observe this coin price goes up. Oh, it, it must mean that this is a, a a good asset. It must mean that this chain is is decentralized. It must mean that this chain is long lasting. Um, you know, chains like the Binance chain, for example, they are having some success with DeFi, mm-hmm. quote unquote. Yeah. And so this is legitimacy by by performance, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's absolutely true. And uh, legitimacy by performance is definitely one of those mm-hmm. uh, interesting things because. It's often how a kind of intellectual revolution happens. Like there's this sort of equilibrium of conformism among, you know, the right thinking people where the right thinking people have certain ideas that they think are legitimate, but then something outside of those ideas just starts performing and it keeps performing and it keeps performing. And the people within this uh, kind of self-affirming circle of intellectuals just keep ignoring it for a long time, but then eventually like people that are kind of further away from the center, like they just see, you know, hey, this thing on the outside is performing well. And, you know, we don't give a crap about these principles. Like, look, this thing is successful. And like that often ends up overturning things, right? And that's something that some, like, once again, you know, I have to keep giving this disclaimer, right? Like the legitimacy does not, something being legitimate does not mean that you like the thing, right? And sometimes the thing that you like loses legitimacy and a thing that you don't like gains legitimacy. 
Um, one interesting thing that I think the U.S. might be experiencing over the last 10 years or so is actually it feels like the process of democracy is actually losing some legitimacy. And um, so like one example of this, right, is that on the Democrat side, like we saw the whole not my president move, uh, movement, uh, you know, hashtag back in 2017. And that's a very direct and literal example of basically just declaring, hey, I'm going to dip my toes into like basically saying, well, you know, too bad if he was elected by democratic process. Like, I just think that this per that this new person is horrible and uh, that and, and that just overrides the process. Um, and then, of course, on the other side, um, you know, in, two in uh, 2021, we saw, um, you know, people denying the legitimacy of the election results. Right. And so on both sides, like you, if you want to try to kind of like analyze that from a social science perspective, you know, that's a process just like people are sort of dipping their toes into the idea of just not accepting the outcome of the process and just acting like, well, if they don't like the results, they should just act like the result isn't a, a, a legitimate result. And you could, you, you can argue performance is like one of, one of the reasons behind that. Right. So like, this is an example of, a, of how transitions in legitimacy could happen. And like, once again, you know, sometimes these uh, transitions happen in directions that you like. Sometimes these transitions happen in, directions that you don't like, right? Um, in the crypto space, another example of this is uh, proof of stake, right? Like the legitimacy of proof of stake, like does a chain running on proof of stake sort of get the aura of being a first class decentralized system that you want to put your applications onto? And that's something that I think is like, is, is rising over time, right? Like uh, maybe five years ago, the uh, proof of work had much more legitimacy, but now, as Ethereum's proof of stake is getting closer, as we see more and more chains running on proof of stake, like it's becoming just more and more accepted by this larger and larger community. And that's uh, something that, um, you know, is definitely really disliked by this kind of self-affirming clique of intellectuals within the yeah, Bitcoin proof of work camp. And they just like keep on shouting their arguments about no, nothing at stake, no costless simulation, no rich get richer. Um, and now, of course, you know, we have our intellectual rebuttals to that, but like the it's almost the fact that the intellectual rebuttals are now gaining steam is, I mean, like in part, I like I want to think that it's because my arguments are logically amazing. But it, you know, we as you said, it's not just because the arguments are logically amazing. It's also because of legitimacy by performance and this kind of hidden social force that's subconsciously influencing everyone. And Ethereum just looks like something that's strong and looks like something that's rising. And so that's something that you know people want to kind of rally behind, right? So. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about two more Vitalik that that you have these these like theories of legitimacy as we said we talked about continuity fairness process performance you mentioned very briefly legitimacy by participation but I think that's an important one in the context of crypto and has many many aspects so the fact that anyone can open an Ethereum address right all you need is an internet connection mm -hmm. uh, that's something you don't get in the traditional banking system, for instance. Uh, so that is more participation. Um, the fact that anyone in a more decentralized proof-of-stake network um, can spin up an Ethereum node, uh, validator node, provided that you have the necessary stake to, to validate. Um, mm -hmm. It's much more 
permissionless. Democracies have legitimacy by not just process, but also participation in that every citizen has the ability to, to vote. Talk a bit more about legitimacy by participation. Then we'll we'll talk about the last one, which is legitimacy by continuity. Mm. And uh, that'll give us a grounding for the rest of this. So what about participation? Sure. So legitimacy by participation basically just means, you know, if the process has, just gives you and gives its participants an ability to actually shape and be part of the outcome of the process, then this is something that people are likely to accept, right? And... Participation is not just fairness, right? Um, like, uh, it's like part of it is fairness because uh, systems that um, everyone can participate in are systems that are more likely to be fair. But it's also a somewhat different psychological force, right? It's more like if you, uh, it's like a desire to have a force sort of psychological self consistency. Like, once you go to the ballot box and you make a vote, like you feel invested in the process and like you feel like, you know, you are a person who is part of doing, implementing the democracy thing. And so this, uh, you know, makes you want to also be a person who is part of implementing the democracy thing in other contexts. Right. And, you know, in the case of the blockchain, your ability to run a node um, is definitely legitimacy by participation. Um, and, it's also other kinds of legitimacy as well, right? It's also just kind of like intellectual legitimacy of just the idea that self-verification is um, important and it's like a, a key part of, of what makes something a yeah, blockchain instead of making it, a, making it a centralized system. There's some legitimacy by fairness in there as well. Um, Gitcoin grants is also another example of legitimacy by participation. Like, you know, you yourself can affect which uh, direction the matching pot goes if like you go and participate. Um, so I guess um, like one example of this, right, is um, that like there are fair systems that you can't participate in, right? So like, for example, if you're 16 years old, then you cannot yet vote. But even if you're 16, like you might be, you might still be convinced by the intellectual arguments that, you know, the average 16 year old is a lower quality political participant than the average adult. And so <laughs> like they, again, we can debate how true that is, but like, let's leave that aside. Like you might be convinced by this argument um, and you might like, and so, uh, you know, you might still accept democracy being fair, despite the fact that only 18 year olds can participate. But, you know, you're still not going to get the legitimacy by participation component. Um, but and so like this might be part of why, um, you know, there are, actually are all of these uh, like youth political movements and like schools and, um, you know, uh, like often actively encourage uh, kind of teenagers to start, um, you know, doing like, doing civic engagement of some kind. Right. Like it's this alternative route to actually getting legitimacy by participation I kind of started earlier. Uh, so this is definitely something that um, happens a lot. And I definitely think that like decentralized systems heavily benefit from this because like there's no part of a decentralized system that is closed off to you. Right. If you want to read the chain, you can read the chain. If you want to send a transaction, you can send a transaction. Um, if you want to participate in consensus, you can go participate in consensus. Uh, so like, that aspect where like there is no part of the chain that uh of the chain's activity that like, is uh, not something that you can conceivably be part of 
is something that I think like it, it does really contribute to the legitimacy of public chains. Um, and it's something that I think like is, a, is one reason why kind of like more fully decentralized systems like Ethereum and Bitcoin are likely to have more legitimacy than these uh, like more semi-centralized chains that really that like intrinsically depend on delegated pools. Right. Because like if you have one of these chains that have that real that like relies on like mandatory delegated pools and there's only 21 validator slots. Well, you know, everyone knows that they have no chance in hell of becoming one of the 21. And so, you know, like the idea that like you are a second class participant and like there is this one class of, of, uh, per, of participant that's above you in a formal sense, like that is going to weigh on you to some extent. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying the conversation with Vitalik so far. Coming up next, we finish up going through Vitalik's identified sources of legitimacy, just a few left. We also talk about the role of legitimacy inside of NFTs, as well as the power of charitable giving in adding legitimacy to the value of an NFT. And then we also turn to the conversation of legitimacy of the monetary policy of Ether the asset. And we ask Vitalik, will the most legitimate blockchain have the highest level of security? And overall, we can't miss the opportunity of talking to Vitalik about his thoughts on ultrasound money, but we do it inside of the context of legitimacy. Stay tuned for the second half of this podcast. Don't go anywhere. But first, we have to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible. Bankless is proud to be supported by Uniswap. Uniswap is a new paradigm in asset exchange infrastructure. Instead of a cumbersome order book system where trades are matched with other humans, Uniswap is an autonomous piece of software on Ethereum, which is what Ryan and I call a money robot. No human counterparties or centralized intermediaries, just autonomous code on Ethereum. Input the token you want to sell and receive the token you want to buy. Something brand new in the Uniswap ecosystem is the Uniswap Grants program is now accepting applications for grants. We have been saying this for a while and we'll say it again. DAOs have money and they are in need of labor. If you think that you have something to contribute to the Uniswap DAO, apply for a grant to Uniswap. Just look at the size of the Uniswap treasury. It's almost $3 billion. This mountain of capital is looking for labor. Do you have something of value to contribute to the Uniswap DAO? No matter how big or small your idea is, you can apply for a uni grant at unigrants.org and help steer Uniswap in the direction that you think it should go. That's exactly what we did to get Uniswap to be a sponsor for Bankless, and you can do the same for your project. Thank you, Uniswap, for sponsoring Bankless. Synthetics is Ethereum's derivatives liquidity protocol. What does this mean? Synthetics is a platform for creating and trading synthetic assets. This includes real world assets like commodities, equities, and currencies. You get access to a global range of assets on a single decentralized platform. Traders could use the Quenta Exchange, which hosts and trades all of the synthetic assets created by Synthetics. Traders on Quenta can trade tokens such as synthetic Bitcoin, synthetic oil, synthetic Tesla, or even synthetic DeFi. Because Quenta is powered by synthetics, traders experience zero slippage in their trades. No, I don't mean low slippage, I mean no slippage, because that's the power of the synthetics platform. No slippage on your trades. You can also easily short assets with iSynths. These are synthetic tokens that move inversely to their target asset, or you can simply short by borrowing against SUSD while getting paid a yield to do it. Synthetics isn't just for traders. Developers can build on synthetics to access the infinite liquidity offered by synthetic assets. 
where investors can stake collateral to the protocol and earn fees that the protocol collects. If you're a trader and you're looking for a trading platform not found in the legacy world, check out quenta.io. And if you just want to earn yield on your collateral, go to staking.synthetics.io, where you can stake your SNX or ETH and earn fees from Synthetics. If you want to learn more, head to synthetics.io and join their Discord community. So all of these theories of legitimacy we're talking about so, so much about we're, we're making analogs to traditional institutions is because legitimacy underpins is the foundation for all traditional institutions. And of course, blockchains, public blockchains cannot, like Ethereum, cannot use legitimacy by brute force. Violence is just not an option. So legitimacy needs to come from all of these other sources that we've just named. The last one, and then we'll, we'll continue on with the conversation, is legitimacy by continuity. And I think that's an important, applicable one in uh, crypto, maybe maybe this has some relationship to what we have called previously the Lindy effect. So the idea that if something is legitimate at time t, by definition, it is legitimate at time t plus one into the future. Um, and perhaps even more legitimate at t plus one. Exactly. And so um, Bitcoiners will say yes. And the Bitcoin network has been humming for the last decade plus. Uh, and its monetary policy has not changed. It has continuity, and therefore, it is a good store of value. Can you reflect on legitimacy by continuity in time? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think legitimacy by continuity is important because it just is the reason why we can have these like social structures that last for like longer than a week at all, right? Like, uh, if we did not have legitimacy by continuity at all then, you know, every political system would be up for like total revaluation, you know, every, every Tuesday. And if people thought in this way, then like, you know, it'll just be like hard to coordinate things that last longer than a week. Uh, and that's like, it's one of those things that we think about the least, uh, because it's just something that like, by definition happens by default, but it is important. Right. And as you said, like the longer a system lasts, then, you know, the longer it does acquire this Lindy value. And, uh, you know, when uh, newer people are coming in and they're trying to like see, you know, what is the system that I should get behind because it's the one that I expect other people to be getting behind. Like it's uh, this long track record of uh, survival is definitely uh, one of the f factors that they're taking into consideration. So Vitalik, the through line that I'm really seeing here with all these different forces that illegitimacy arise from is we call this a social force and it feels very much like a bottom-up force, a populist force. Um, mm -hmm. People choose uh, in these various different mechanisms what is legitimate versus what's not. But is legitimacy explicitly a bottom-up phenomenon? In the article you wrote, in general, legitimacy arises because the thing that gains legitimacy is psychologically appealing to most people. Does that mean that legitimacy is a people-first force? Um, legitimacy definitely is something that comes from people first, but um, two caveats, right? Like, or Well, one caveat, basically, is that the thing that gains legitimacy can be something that's very centralized, right? Like, for example, you know, within the Tron ecosystem, you know, like Justin Sun has a huge amount of legitimacy um, within, um, you know, the Bitcoin SV ecosystem. Craig Wright has a lot of legitimacy. Um, and of course, the centralized figure can, um, in a lot of cases, also gain legitimacy by brute force as well. Right. Uh, so 
like it is something that comes from the people, but the consequent consequences that it has and the things that it empowers can be centralized in some way a lot of the time. And so that is something that like is worth watching out for. Right. And so even with a dictatorship where, you know, legitimacy comes from just raw, unbridled power, which the people must be subservient to, even then it's still kind of a bottom up force because yes. the collective people identify mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. there's a lot of power there. And so they should be subservient to it. Right. And even then we've seen instances throughout history where there is this top down control and then something happens that allows the people to question that control. And there's a collective shift where everyone realizes that perhaps they actually have the power to determine what's legitimate. And there is a populist uprising. Right. And so using these kind of uh, mental models, let's talk about a stable equilibrium. How do we find stable equilibria when it comes to legitimacy and all these other sources of legitimacy that we've gone through? Uh, again, I think like... The equilibria are stable most of the time, right? Like uh, the, the shift in equilibria is one of those things that's like more catastrophist and gradualist to use an uh, evolutionary analogy, right? It's uh, the sort of thing that uh, kind of is steady for a long time. And then like sometimes you can see that when a shift begins, the shift um, starts off slow at, um, at times and the shift starts slow, and then when the shift gets to a certain critical point, it just happens quickly, right? And the reason why things work this way is because, like, just going back to a kind of my characterization of what the legitimacy phenomenon is, it's a pattern of people behaving in a certain way because they see everyone else behaving in that way. And, like, there is a big risk to stepping out of line alone that doesn't exist if everyone steps out of line at the same time, right? And so if... Um, everyone considers some idea or some conception as being legitimate, and that's uh, something that's very strong. Then if you start kind of going against it, uh, then you're not likely to have much of an effect. And uh, you're even likely to, like, see, at best, waste time and at most, like, uh, like, kind of hurt your own interests by going against it. But then the thing that you can do, right, is that you can sort of start like dipping your feet a little and you can start like, say, publicly questioning the concept slightly, but not actually going against it in your actions. And then once the, f the first person who does that, they do incur some social cost, but then the second person who does that incurs a lower social cost. And so legitimacy starts kind of slowly decreasing over time. And then eventually there does some come some critical point where like people have done enough public questioning of uh, the concept that it just the, what it can start flipping from like um, resistance to the old equilibrium being underground to resistance to the old equilibrium being like very open and very overground fairly quickly right so I think uh, the more interesting way to frame the question is actually not even how do you identify conceptions of legitimacy being stable because that's the norm the interesting thing to identify is like how do you identify when a yeah, big shift in the AI conception of, of legitimacy is about to happen? And I think people have an intuitive feel for these things, especially because in the last five years or so in both crypto and in the world in general, like we've had some of these uh, shifts in legitimacy and they like, you, know, you can feel it, how these things sort of happen gradually and then they happen suddenly. And sometimes only when they happen suddenly, do you look back and do you realize that like, Hey, these things that people were saying in the two, in the two or three years uh, before that actually were a prelude to that. 
I think a very relevant current event here is the Alexei Navalny uh, case mm. with uh, with Russia and Va- Vladimir Putin right now, where mm-hmm. Alexei Navalny was uh, ostracized from Ru- from Russia. He he fled. Uh, he was tried. He was poisoned by uh, the Russian you know inner party. Uh, then he comes back to Russia and was immediately jailed and is now uh, perhaps on like the last strings of of his life in jail under Vladimir Putin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the what you, what you just said recently was that um, the first person to question legitimacy, legitimacy probably loses a lot of, of mm-hmm. social power and social force. But then what that person is doing is allows for the people to come after them to more easily question the legitimacy. And yes. if this trajectory, uh, trajectory flows, Alexei mm-hmm. Navalny, who is already a mm-hmm. hero of the Russian people, and there's already this showing of solidarity behind this individual, I think a very apt current event to illustrate the power of legitimacy is going on right now in Russia. And I think that it would be a useful mental model for listeners to uh, really understand how legitimacy is flowing in current times. Right. Yeah. No, it's definitely a really uh, interesting, although of course, you uh, know, very yeah, unfortunate for um, Alexei Kim as well. A uh, kind of situation to be watching. It's uh, you know, the the question to see is basically, you know, to what extent and uh, or whether or not a serious equilibrium flip does actually happen. Mm-hmm. Right. Like equilibrium flips have happened before in Russia. Like, you know, the whole switch from uh, communism to post-communism was one of those big examples of uh, an equilibrium flip. And, you know, like someone like my dad like, you know, definitely remembers it, ha- uh, how it was uh, out as it was happening. Um, so that's like there's two ways that it could go. Right. Like it could either uh, kind of continue snowballing and um Eventually, um, you know, Big V either has to make serious concessions or he uh, kind of actually ends up uh, getting taken out of power somehow. Or you know, the other possibility, of course, is that like, it does uh, just sort of fizzle over time mm-hmm. um, and the sort of equilibrium does uh, kind of reestablish itself. But even if the equilibrium reestablishes itself, like it, I think it definitely would it would be a shift from uh, kind of like legitimacy by performance, which is the thing that I think did sort of boy up Putin for the first uh, like 10 years of his uh, presidency to like just like clearer kind of just like brute legitimacy by brute force. And that kind of like that kind of switch is something that like could can have like bad long-term consequences for him, for him and uh, you know, his, his government as well. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we'll see how it goes. And I definitely, uh, you know, w- w- wish the best for um, the Russian people as uh, you know, I'm Russian myself, but uh, we'll, we'll see how this goes. Another example that I think is is kind of visceral that you give in the article is kind of the uh, the the general in the army mm-hmm. example, or maybe a captain in, in the army. And um, I'm a I I really enjoy listening to Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. I don't know if you guys have ever. Listened I listened to, it, to but, all of them. Um, <laughs> okay, well, amazing. So he did this this whole series called King of Kings, and it was basically Persian Assyrian history. Anyway, th- there are many episodes in that, like hours of listening. If you get bored of Bankless guys it's a little you know get bored of crypto go to dan carlin but um he gives very visceral examples of what it was like to fight at the front lines of um you know an an ancient army essentially and the captain or the commander's main job was social coordination the captain had to make sure that his troops would not break rank because if the line broke 
there would inevitably mm-hmm. be a slaughter. Right. And so the captain would have to have a show of confidence, mm-hmm. be, you know, decorated in like, you know, bright ar- armor, uh, be standing, be, be sitting on a horse um, and had to instill this confidence because every soldier with the prospect of, of certain death and another army about to come kill them, uh, very nervous at that time. What you're doing as a soldier is you're kind of looking around to your fellow soldiers and you're saying, oh, is he going to run? Is he going to run? Right. So it's like this it's like this real time human coordination, social coordination game being played out at the highest mm-hmm. stakes. And that was a fascinating example of um, how I think some of these legitimacy mechanisms almost emerge mm-hmm. in human behavior. Can you talk about that a little bit, like sort of the the emergence? Uh, there, there's a line from your article that says, with any coordination games that exist for long enough, there inevitably emerge some mechanisms. Mm-hmm. These are not necessarily defined mechanisms in words or legal language, but these are mechanisms nonetheless that emerge. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, I think uh, human behavior in general, and like especially collective behavior, very easily falls into patterns. And it's just something that naturally happens over time, right? And, you know, you can see why it happens. Like, it's easier for each individual person to just, like, repeat the same habits that they've grown accustomed to than it is for them to kind of, like, flip their habits. Um, And it's also easier to continue um, along a habit because getting an entire group of people to switch is something that's even harder. Um, So, no, the, the, the ancient armies are definitely a great example. It's fascinating how... Like while two armies are fighting each other head to head, there's generally not too many casualties, um, at least um, I- immediately. But then once one of the armies like does that equilibrium flip and it starts routing, like that's when the carnage be- really begins, right? And so, <laughs> like whether or not the equilibrium flips is like one of the most important things in a battle, and it's something that the captain has to like, try really hard to prevent, right? And uh, that's. One of those cases where, you know, yes, the soldiers are exactly like they're wa- they're watching each other. They're seeing, you know, who's going to, uh, are these people going to run? Are these people not going to run? And, you know, if other people run, but then you start running five seconds later, like, guess what? You're at the back of the line and you're the first that's going to like, uh, you know, get a sword or an axe in the back of your spine. Um, so, but if you start running and other people don't run, then, well, you know, you're you're a deserter and uh, you're likely to get your head chopped off by your own army at the end of the battle. Uh, so that's, you know, it's, it's a perfect example and it's, like, really tough to be in that kind of situation. Um, and, like, yeah, the thing that everyone wants to do is just, like, see what everyone else is doing because, like, they just feel like acting the same way that everyone else acts, like, just is the okay way to act. Vitalik, does this explain maximalism almost, <laughs> or sort of an, an ardent maximalism? <laughs> David, as before, has called some ardent maximalists like almost like barrier troops, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that prevent yep, I think, uh, your own army from fleeing. No, that's that's uh, definitely a, a fascinating example. Um, definitely a big uh, like intellectual legitimacy in general is a really uh, important uh, type of uh, legitimacy, and just having people out there just like you know, saying the rah-rah slogans and like talking about how they're going to fight till the end and how their belief in this uh, cause is unconditional is uh, definitely a way of like just showing other, like the other people in the community that, you know, there is at least this group of people that, you know, is not going to flee before me. So it's uh, safe. If, uh, it, it's kind of safe for me to continue being part of this uh, and, you know, c- continuing to shout the slogans myself. That um, absolutely is a thing that happens. 
Well, but some of it's logical too. And I'll give an example for Bankless listeners. We'll listen a, a few podcasts ado, ago. We had on Hasu, who is a crypto researcher, also involved in the, the Ethereum mm-hmm. community, someone who I consider an intellectual, has some fantastic ideas. And toward the mm-hmm. end of that episode, he said something that uh, kind of blew my mind. He said that, um, you know, there are many, including himself, in the Bitcoin community that know that the long term security model of Bitcoin uh, mm-hmm. fixed cap is actually flawed. But then mm-hmm. he also followed up by this. Um, he said he was reticent to proclaim that it was mm-hmm. flawed. And mm-hmm. why is the reason? It's not anti-intellectualism. It's because actually acknowledging the problem um, hastens the demise of mm-hmm. Bitcoin because so much of Bitcoin's economic monetary uh, st- policy and, and number go up is because of legitimacy of fixed issuance. So mm-hmm. if you break rank and you actually talk about that, even bring it up, you could actually be contributing to the delegitimization mm-hmm. of Bitcoin itself. And so it was almost a rational reason why yep. he was reticent to to kind of bring it up. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's very true. Vitalik, we were talking about how humans just need to be on the same page in order to create this social force legitimacy. My mind turned to the concept of shelling points. Where do you see the intersection of shelling points and legitimacy? Uh, how do you see those concepts as related? I think legitimacy is a type of uh, shelling point phenomenon. Like uh, there is definitely some level at which they're almost synonyms, and they like they're definitely sort of like within the same category of um, idea space. Um, so. Shelling points are, you know, just this idea that, like, if you want people to, like, basically people, um, if they have to coordinate with other people on something, like, if they benefit from making the exact same choice as other people, then they would just, like, choose the 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 course of action that just they think it seems the most intuitive to the largest group of people. Um, and, like, they latch on to just, like, any conception of intuitiveness that like seems like it's kind of widely shared enough, um, regardless of um, you know whether or not like they personally agree with it or whether or not it's like logical in some other sense. Uh, so, his um, Thomas Schelling's original example was like if you uh, tell someone that uh, you wants to meet them in New York, but um, you know you, you don't you don't know what location in New York, like what place should you go to? And the answer that he gave was uh, Grand Central Station. And I guess the theory is that like Grand Central Station is this, it's this big landmark in New York. And it's a landmark that where people know that everyone else knows that it's a big landmark. And so, you know, you're more likely to go there because you're reasoning that the other person is reasoning the same way. Now, of course, to be fair, if I went to New York, I would probably not choose Grand Central Station. I would choose Times Square. And I I, actually, I'm not sure exactly what Grand Central Station is, um, but like, this just shows how these shelling points can be a kind of different across different communities. And the conception of uh, legitimacy, I guess, like it's basically the exact same kind of uh, phenomenon. And though it's something that's not just applied to like one-time actions, it's also something that's just applied to these uh, like, long ongoing processes. I think the, the the key lesson is just that like this idea that there's just so many different contexts in our like collective human activity where it makes sense to take to make the same choice as other people, but everyone's trying to make the choice at the same time without having perfect information of everyone else's choice. And so they just have to like latch on to 
ideas that they expect everyone else to consider intuitive. Like that's, it's just this really important thing and it affects like a huge amount of behavior. And so I think a lot of people in history have kind of identified the importance of this. And also in this article and in many of your other articles as well, you've used this uh, alternative shelling uh, concept as a shelling fence, which I'm actually unfamiliar with. So maybe you could help us uh, learn what a shelling fence is in contrast to a shelling point mm -hmm. and how it relates to legitimacy. Yeah. So a shelling fence is this idea that like you can go up to a, uh, it's a common agreement that you can go up to a certain point, um, and, but like you can't go further than, uh, than that point. Um, so, well, the shelling fence is actually an uh, ideal analogy because like literal fences, even when they're insecure are shelling fences in some way, right? Like, because what you imagine, you know, you have two farmers and they both have their farms and there's a fence between those two farms, then like it's beneficial for the two farmers relationships for them to both agree on like, this is my land and this is your land. And I'm not going to like go and grab things from your land and you're not going to go and grab things from my land. And if there is just any kind of natural landmark, like whether it's a river or, or even just like whether it's just an actual fence that someone put there, uh, like that's just the fact that it's the most visible landmark just like is the thing that makes it clear that, you know, you're not going to go past like that point. Um, and there's a lot of um, ex like one other example of uh, this, like say in the crypto space might be that. You could conceive of a blockchain community where people in that blockchain community are okay with, say, a portion of transaction fees being redirected to a dev fund, but they would not be okay with issuance going into a dev fund. And now you might ask, well, like, why this arbitrary distinction, right? Like, transaction fees are like a unit of currency. Um, a blocker reward is a unit of currency. And like really 20% of transaction fees is much greater than 0.01 coins of block reward. So why be okay with the first thing, but not be okay with the second thing? And the reason, like there's a very rational reason to be okay with kind of arbitrary distinctions like this. And the, the reason basically is like, it's a slippery slope effect, right? Like slippery slopes are not fallacies. Um, you know, they're like, it, it is definitely true that once if you start accepting that, um, you know, let's have a 0 0.01 coin block reward going to a dev fund, then you've really kind of reduced the strength of the argument against um, having an even bigger dev fund. And so if the community agrees that they want a, 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 a medium-sized dev fund, but they also still want to kind of keep a barrier that like very clearly prevents them from going even further um, because they want to, you know, protect like their like, monetary legitimacy, then, you know, saying a portion of transaction fees can go to a dev fund, but a portion of issue, but issuance cannot, like it's just a very clear dividing boundary. And the existence of that dividing boundary basically allows you to kind of go up to that dividing boundary without compromising on everyone's really strong agreement that you can't do anything beyond that dividing boundary. Um, and so like, that's one, um, that's one example of something that could happen. Um, another example of a, a shelling fence is just like zero is a very common shelling fence. Uh, so just the fact that like, you don't want to start doing certain things at all. Um, like you don't want to start having a dev fund at all. You don't want to start like, um, you know, even just like doing coin rescues at, uh, uh hard forks at all. 
uh, because if you start doing them at all, then you've severely weakened your argument against going further. And then once you go further, you've severely weakened your argument against going even further. And so like, you just have to like put your foot down somewhere and say like, this is the limit. And oftentimes like there isn't a kind of intuitive spot to put that limit except for zero. And so that's why like sometimes we just have to agree that like, you know, we're going to put our foot down and we're going to say zero is uh, the limit, even though from some so like, a kind of social optimality sense, the yeah, best amount might be some number higher than zero, like just because of limits to coordination, like zero might just be the number that you choose, right? So like these kinds of like- Bitcoin's monetary policy yes. comes to mind. Yes, that's uh, a definitely a great example. Like, you know, there's definitely a lot of Bitcoiners who would be willing to privately admit that like, yes, Bitcoin would on net be better if you just said there was a 0.1 Bitcoin block reward that continues permanently. But um, in practice, um, like everyone uh, kind of agrees that um, once you start saying 0.1, then like you've really compromised your ability to argue against, uh, say, increasing to 0.5 and then increasing to 2 and then increasing even further. And the fact that everyone uh, kind of like believes in this uh, slippery slope itself uh, kind of contributes to everyone's understanding of the strength of not even starting to go down the slippery slope. And so like everyone's belief in the shelling fence essentially is the thing that just contributes to the shelling fence being so strong, right? So I definitely expect that, um, you know, Bitcoin is going to have an extremely hard time going beyond the 21 million coin limit. Um, like I actually think that, um, you know, if uh, Bitcoin has a security crisis, so there start being successful 51% attacks against it, like there's basically three ch choices that they could take, right? Choice one is uh, compromising on 21 million. Choice two is just accepting the attacks. And choice three is moving to at least hybrid proof of stake. And I mean, I expect um, that there is a higher chance that they'll that if that if there is a security crisis they'll move to hybrid proof of stake just because um you know even if the kind of like the core Bitcoin Arati really hate proof of stake like just the fact that Ethereum and the fact that all these other platforms are running it are using it without a problem actually does contribute to its legitimacy but if that did not happen right if uh, like the the hybrid proof of stake route was also out of the question like they would much rather just accept the attacks then they would um, accept a uh, even slight issuance increase um, just uh, because uh, of these uh, sh uh, of these shelling fences. Like basically, like there's parts of the Bitcoin community that are even actively against making a shelling fence about any specific guarantee of security, right? Like they even explicitly say things like, oh, you know, the Bitcoin blockchain is explicitly something that never finalizes. And so even reverting a week of activity is something that does not like explicitly violate the Bitcoin blockchain stated guarantees, which I think to an Ethereum person like sounds very insane. And I think in the Ethereum case, um, you know, if uh, like there was a 51% attack that reverted a week of activity, we would just do a hard fork, right? Or at least a soft fork that just like did deleted the attacking chain. Um, but so like, that's just like an example where I think uh, like in the Ethereum case, like just finality and non-reversion is something just like is a stronger part of the uh, social contract. And like, you could even imagine a blockchain community that says, you know, we have a hard community norm against reversions longer than 24 hours. And so if the proof of work system reverts more than 24 hours, well, too bad, we're, we're going to have to hard fork it. 
And if that happens, like that's just another example of like how, you know, like if you set the fence, then like that fence itself becomes like one of these self-reinforcing thing that's, things that's really powerful. And so like how you set the norms at the beginning is just really important. I think the two Ethereum examples, one at the start of this was um, the block reward to developers EIP did not get community traction mm-hmm. and did not yep. move forward. And that mm-hmm. was sort of a, a shelling fence. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. Back to the zero to one. Another example is probably, uh, you sort of alluded to this, but the um, the parity wallet hack, that was a an mm-hmm. EIP that did not move forward because right. the question to the community for the shelling fence is, okay, then where does it stop? Mm-hmm. Uh, which yes. hack do we decide to bail out? Which do we not? Let's just keep it at zero and not bail anybody out. I've got a wallet that has some ether in it that I would like to get back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can I submit an EIP for this? <laughs> yeah. No, but, uh, so yeah, I think uh, the EIP 999 case was interesting, right? Because the DAO fork, like it did compromise the shelling fence of like basically no, no state intervention. And that is something that made a lot of people upset. And that is something that made a lot of people move to ETC. But even the people who did not move to ETC, like they were, they were kind of scared as a result. And so I think the rejection of EIP 999 was in part motivated by this desire to like reestablish a, a shelling fence and say, you know, yes, we did the DAO fork, but you know, no, despite that we have standards. And like, I, I think that was effective. Like, I think that's something that a lot of Bitcoiners were not expecting. Like they really were expecting that, you know, if you do it once, you just keep doing it forever. But um, you know, no, it, like the, like EIP 999 not happening. Like it, it it did convince a lot of people that like, you know, it like the Dell fork happened once, but that does not mean that like Ethereum chain intervention is a free for all. Um, so that was an interesting situation as well. So Vitalik, say the whole world will listen to this podcast and hopefully, hopefully that happens. And now the whole world is informed no. about this uh, and uh, this power called legitimacy. Mm-hmm. And now that we have this name on, on it, we can actually discuss it and talk about it in a more manifested sense. What can humans do with legitimacy? Like if, if everyone understands that this force exists, can we harness it? Like what if we had more legitimacy in the world? What does it mean to be more legitimate? Uh, if we can harness this power, what could we do with it? So one uh, very important form of uh, legitimacy in the world is uh, property rights, right? Like property rights are something that like, sits on top of legitimacy, right? Like people are not going to be able to like successfully conquer your house and maintain your position inside the house because like there are these conceptions of legitimacy where, and uh, you know, the police know that if someone conquers your house and sets up camp in it, they have to come in and dislodge them. And then they know this because they know that if they don't do this, then other people in the government are going to yell at them and they're going to do it themselves. And then at some point it escalates to the military. And then if the military doesn't do that, then, uh, you know, the government's going to get voted out of office. So there's this kind of towering set of expectations and it even towers uh, internationally to some extent um, that are are protecting your house, right? And so if that conception of legitimacy did not exist, then, you know, yes, like someone who had more guns can like just like conquer your house and uh, set up shop inside of it. Uh, So the interesting thing about property rights is that just because of like um, new technology, um, you often see new property rights uh, or the pot, the the need for new property rights uh, emerging, right? So like one example of this is uh, like we could talk about Antarctica, right? So uh, 
people like right now Antarctica is this backwater that very few people care about and it's mostly just like a place for scientific research but there's a possibility that within half a century Antarctica is going to become more important so the re- a big part of the reason why is global warming right so the climate is expected to warm by several degrees over the course of the next few decades and like people have done the kind of the analysis of like how this is going to affect uh, the temperature and livability of different places and western antarctica like that peninsula that's like just a thousand kilometers south of south america is expected to potentially become if uh is somewhat a viable place for settlement like within half a century right and so as one of the interesting secondary consequences of global warming is that we could actually see antarctica becoming this like thing that people care about considerably more than they did before now the problem right now is that like there aren't really strong conceptions of uh, property rights around Antarctica because like just not enough people care about doing anything with Antarctica that like it like on the at current margins, it's not rivalrous basically. Right. But eventually like we can imagine a future where Western Antarctica becomes um, rivalrous and like you will need a conception of property rights. So you could also extend this to the moon or space or right, other right. areas exactly. of property. So like one thing that we could agree on for uh, like Antarctica right now is we could just say, hey, how about we agree right now that we're going to like say have uh, some global body could be the UN could be some special purpose separate thing um, put harbor taxes on Antarctica on Antarctica and just like. Instead of just giving it to whoever comes first, you just like put this sort of like permanent uh, sort of like half ownership, half lease type mechanism on it. And then the revenues from the Harburger tax would just go into a global basic income. Right. So if you do this, then you've basically created this global basic income fund. And like you could imagine every person in the world, you know, gaining like probably not enough money to eat, but like at least, you know, some like tens of dollars a year. Uh, and if that happens, like that's something that could be good for humanity, right? But in order to arrange something like that, like you do need to have some conception of legitimacy, like you need to have a wide enough common agreement that, um, you know, Western Antarctica would actually be a kind of like, or property rights in Western Antarctica would be managed under this scheme that uh, has revenue going to this place that then distributes it among everyone and gives it and gives everyone a basic income that um, you uh, like so that the, these property rights like would actually just be valid, right? Because if it's only a few people trying to implement this, but like actually, um, you know, just like some powerful country comes in and says like, you know, yeah, no, this thing's ours, then like that it's not going to succeed. Right. And so like the, that's just like one just one possible example of like something where if you start like if you start a kind of like engaging in public discourse and sort of shoring up legitimacy behind this idea that, you know, if Western Antarctica becomes important, then we're going to harbor tax it and give everyone a basic income. Then like that increases the chance that actually that actually does become the equilibrium that happens. But on the other hand, if no one starts talking about it, then like that's just not going to happen and you'll get a result that's probably less interesting. I think what we're getting from from that is what can we do with more legitimacy is we can play better social coordination games. Mm-hmm. And that that's what human beings are really good at. That's mm-hmm. how we found success as a species. Let's uh, let, let's talk a bit more about crypto, because I think 
what we're unlocking in this concept of legitimacy with the the post and the description thus far is I'm not going to say a theory to everything, but it's an answer to most of many of the FAQs mm-hmm. that I hear when people first come into into crypto. So let me give an example. A couple we've covered. Um, one is like, why can't Ethereum just have issue a, an EIP and uh, fund its public goods that way? And we can't because of legitimacy. Uh, you gave another example of of you know. Why can't a bank, for instance, acquire a DeFi protocol? Well, they can't. We have the the Steam versus Justin Sun example because the thing that they're acquiring is actually social consensus, mm-hmm. and they can't just buy legitimacy. They they almost have to earn it. Mm-hmm. Here's another question I think people ask when they get in the space, and this was a common question in 2013, 2014 about why Bitcoin is is valuable. And some critics have said, Bit, said back then, especially Bitcoin will never be valuable. Because anybody can just create a fork, right? I could create, take my Bitcoin and then say, this is the legitimate Bitcoin. And it's called Bitcoin Ryan. <laughs> and like that turned out to be completely not true mm-hmm. um, because of legitimacy. Would mm-hmm. you agree with that? Definitely. Well, so the interesting thing also is that like there's Bitcoin maximalists who said that, uh, you know, for Bitcoin to maintain and its uh, value, like Bitcoin has to be accepted as the only one because if people start accepting the legitimacy of other cryptocurrencies, then like the ability of Bitcoin to maintain any kind of special status just like disappears and people start acting like they're all the same and cryptocurrency as a sector hyperinflates. And we discovered that that's completely not true, right? Like Anyone can print a new cryptocurrency, but printing a new cryptocurrency that has the legitimacy to gain value is something that actually is hard, right? And it's something that takes a lot of effort. It's something like that not everyone can do. And, and it is very possible for, you know, Bitcoin to have a lot of legitimacy, Bitcoin Cash to have less legitimacy, um, Bitcoin ABC to have even less, but still non-zero legitimacy. And then, you know, Bitcoin Ryan would probably like, eh, I mean, I'm, sh- I'm sure if you memed it, it would like get up to a few hundred thousand dollars, but like, you know, even less JBC, like than uh, Bitcoin uh, uh, Diamond or Bitcoin ABC, basically, right? Uh, so like there being multiple cryptocurrencies is something that has proven to be a yes, stable equilibrium, which is, uh, I think, something that a lot of people like given, especially very early in the crypto space, did not expect. I also think another example of this is um, many of the uh, Ethereum killers that have come about talk hmm. about, they, they emphasize um, their technology, mm-hmm. right? More scalability, this sort of thing. And they don't emphasize legitimacy. Mm-hmm. They don't emphasize social scalability. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they, they think this is purely a technical battle, but it's not. It's a legitimacy battle. Mm-hmm. It's a social coordination battle. It's about who where the developers of the future feel comfortable like build which platform they feel comfortable building on top of and mm-hmm. where the users feel comfortable actually uh using without losing their property rights mm-hmm. um, another example y- you gave an example in the post that i think is interesting which is why do DeFi apps it seems like prefer die rather than tether legitimacy yeah yeah well the interesting thing i gave in that example right is that like Traders are often perfectly fine with Tether, but dApps are preferred, uh, strongly preferred DAI over Tether. And the reason is that legitimacy is fundamentally about coordination and traders don't really have to coordinate, right? They're just like trading and their main uh, interaction with other traders is competitive. And so 
like for a trader, like if you personally believe that, like, well, you know, maybe Tether has some sketchiness inside of it, but like, meh, whatever, it's fine. Then like, that's fine. And you can just keep using Tether. But for if you're building an application, then you need something that not just you can trust, but that like you can easily convince other observers and even like fairly low information observers that you're building on top of something sound. And so like something like Dai, where it's a legitimacy model doesn't fundamentally rely on, you know, very socially unscalable assumptions about like how honorable Bitfinex people are like there's uh, <laughs> something like it's just easier to get behind. I think we can also extrapolate the confusion perhaps behind NFTs and why NFTs have value and, and answer that question with legitimacy. And uh, a nice example that I like to use is the uh, the creator of the Nyan Cat GIF. Uh, he made this Nyan Cat GIF many, many, many years ago. Uh, and then recently he remastered it. So he made a brand new GIF, the brand new GIF. Uh, and then he sold that brand new GIF for 300 ETH. Uh, and there's two two uh, v- uh, sources of legitimacy that I see coming into this GIF. One is uh, continuity, where even though it's a brand new GIF, it, it continues from the same meme of the Nyan cat that has almost been around for a whole entire decade. Mm-hmm. And uh, le- uh, legitimacy as the artist who created the NFT in the first place. It was the mm-hmm. original artist who remastered the Nyan Cat GIF, not some new unknown artist. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and I, I think we can extrapolate this to, to most all NFTs at large, where mm-hmm. it's not about the JPEG. It's about the legitimacy. Uh, and, right. and so Vitalik, how do you see uh, legitimacy and NFTs uh, intersecting? Yeah, I think that's uh, definitely an excellent example, right? Because like the question is like, first of all, you know, an NFT of a Nyan Cat is clearly more successful than the same author making an NFT of some completely new turtle meme. But second, um, a Nyan Cat meme made by the author of uh, the the yeah, original Nyan Cat meme is more successful than just like some random person doing it, right? And so like, there's legitimacy in the meme, there's legitimacy in the person, and, uh, you know, there, there's other kinds of legitimacy as well, and they do sort of kind of add up and stack on top of each other. Now, the reason why legitimacy is important in NFTs is because if you look at the reasons why anyone would want an NFT in the first place, right, like one of them is... Uh, you uh, you want uh, you're more likely to buy an NFT if you know that you can resell it later. Another one is you want an NFT for like, social bragging rights, um, and all of these uh, like basically all of the motivations for why you you could conceivably want an NFT are like, very closely bound up with the fact that other people also accept that this is um, a, an NFT that should be have a value. Right. And so, you know, even if like you personally think that a, uh, um, you know, purple hexagon is something that's like really important to the world and is something that should be worth billions, like nobody else agrees that purple hexagons should be worth billions. And so, you know, you're not going to spend much money buying a purple hexagon NFT because like you might get a bit of personal satisfaction. But because nobody else cares about purple hexagons, like your level of personal satisfaction will be limited and your ability to resell it will also be extremely um, limited and probably zero as well. Um, And like we see these kind of like conformism patterns um, occurring in markets um, all the time, right? Like, for example, one of the reasons why houses tends to be relatively standardized and uncreative is because 
when you buy a house, like you want to buy a house that you can sell easily. And then the person you're selling to also wants a house that they know that they can sell easily. And so if you buy a house that is uh, a just conforms to the average person's expectations of a house, then not only do you know that you can you can easily f- find someone who would wants to live in it, you know that you can sell it to someone else because you can easily convince the person that you're selling to that they might later be able to sell uh, to sell it along to someone else as well, right? And so, like you can often like get these sort of effects that just like kind of prop up the value of some houses over others for a long time, and these are just like these. sort of second layer equilibria that just, um, you know, exist on top, like, you know, weird social forces. And with NFTs, it's true as well, right? Um, And so with NFTs, like, yeah, if someone else made a a Nyancat NFT, then it would be much much harder for you to resell it. And like, you would just gain much less social satisfaction from having it. And so just for all of the reasons, it's much less valuable. And so what this means is that NFTs are kind of heavily defined by legitimacy. And if we can affect these conceptions of legitimacy, then we could potentially kind of turn NFTs in or or at least nudge NFTs into something that's real really useful for just like funding or or funneling valuable resource or resources into things that are valuable for society. Right. So like one example that I gave is if we create a yeah, conception that an NFT is more legitimate if it's uh, kind of connected to some nonprofit organization and some portion of the revenues go to that organization. And if people accept that like NFTs with this property are like more legitimate because they're like more scarce in some way than um, NFTs that uh, do not have this connection, then that's like, if that equilibrium exists, then that's something that will just end up like funneling resources to more of these nonprofit organizations. And like trying to actively uh, participate in trying to create these equilibria is something that we should be like, really, I think, focused on and like interested in trying to make happen. What, what you're saying, I, I've seen this in the analog space. There, mm-hmm. There's a brand called Red. I don't know if you've seen this, but there was a mm-hmm. period of time where like Starbucks mm-hmm. was branding their coffee red and you'd see red everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I believe that's a nonprofits mm-hmm. where some portion of the donation from that product went to AIDS. And now I think it's it's COVID-19. But that's the kind of thing you're talking about right. where they branded all of these products and increased demand because now I buy my Starbucks and I'm feeling mm-hmm. like I am actually giving back to something that I support, something like that for NFTs. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm reminded of like the uh, event where when somebody buys a new boat, they swing a bottle of champagne and it breaks it breaks upon the boat. And it's like this mm-hmm. christening event for this boat. And mm-hmm. it has nothing to do with legitimacy. But with an NFT, uh, when you are selling this NFT and you're committing some amount of funds to charity, it feels like a christening event of this NFT. You use the mm-hmm. term uh, bless uh, in in mm-hmm. your article where you are blessing yes. this NFT, bestowing it with legitimacy. And what mm-hmm. was interesting to me is not not a week after you uh, published this article, did the Uniswap V3 X times Y equals K NFT come out. And not mm-hmm. only was a chunk of that revenue of that NFT donated to to charity, all of it was donated to charity. Do you do you think that that like if we if we want to give some perhaps some actionable advice to NFT artists? that it would actually be behoove them from a revenue maximalist perspective to mm-hmm. donate some of their re- uh, their NFT sale revenue to charities? I think that's absolutely the case. I mean, I think it's even one of those things that could sort of like flow in one direction because 
if nobody else is making an NFT going to charity and you make an NFT where some part goes to charity, then, you know, just by that fact, your NFT is special and people are more likely to pay attention to it. But then if lots of people are already making NFTs that go to charity, then, um, you know, that fact just like gains what the fact that an NFT is supposed to be blessed by some charity becomes like this part of its uh, legitimacy. Um, and just like by, the, by that pressure as well, um, you know, it ends up being just like more effective to make an NFT where some portion goes to a charity. Uh, so this is something that like, I'm hoping not just NFT artists think about, but even like major NFT platforms, uh, think about, um, like just incorporating like some notion of, um, you know, flagging NFTs that go that have been blessed by a charity as uh, being that and just making this very clear uh, to buyers. Like, I think if this is something that can be coordinated among, I think, a relatively small number of actors in the ecosystem, then uh, you know, the results could be really interesting. So, Vitalik, I think the bankless community would also love your thoughts on another subject that I feel like is uh, actually very quite, quite related to legitimacy. And that's a topic that has been top of mind for the the last um, cu- uh, couple of months, and that is the topic of ETH as ultrasound money. Right. So this is kind of a, I I I'd call it a, a narrative um, that you know is uh, that Justin Drake actually helped define it. I think you had mm-hmm. some role in actually uh, mm-hmm. naming this concept um, as well. But it, the the way it relates to legitimacy is I have. Uh, sent that podcast to many Bitcoiners uh, I know, and I've invited many who have been previously skeptical about Ethereum and its its future guarantees, security guarantees, monetary guarantees, mm-hmm. or otherwise to listen to it. And I've asked for feedback. Mm-hmm. And many don't listen to it, of course. Many don't go down the journey. But, but those who do generally have a consistent um, piece of feedback, mm-hmm. and, and that is this. The monetary policy is still illegitimate mm-hmm. of Ethereum because it's being changed, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So the fact that it can be tweaked mm-hmm. at this point is outside of sound money mm-hmm. behavior mm-hmm. Uh, as, as kind of defined by, by Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about that for a minute? I guess maybe the contract, the context is ultrasound money, but also like, what do you think a legitimate issuance policy looks like for a cryptocurrency? I think that's a, definitely a great uh, question. And I think, uh, you know, the concept of uh, legitimacy is definitely really important to uh, like this uh, ultrasound question in like a bunch of really subtle ways, right? I think uh, the thing, the key thing that's uh, important here is um, that there is a shift of legitimacy in thinking of ETH as, um, you know, a type of money of any kind, right? Like closer to the beginning of Ethereum's history, um, ETH was more viewed as like basically this uh, thing that you would use to pay for gas, but not really something that, um, you know, you would actually want to use as an asset. And over time, uh, this is, I think, a push from the community much more than it is anything happening from, you know, the Ethereum Foundation or the core developers. Uh, actually, I think it's entirely a push from the yeah, community is that people just started like talking about, um, you know, ETH as an asset and like basically wanting to confer inherent legitimacy to ETH as an asset more and more. 
Um, and I think the place where the ultrasound money uh, kind of meme and the discussion around how proof of stake and EAP 1559 fit, uh, fit into that is that those things, like even now, they signal a commitment to the fact that a large portion of the Ethereum ecosystem like wants ETH to be um, ultrasound money. And like an asset having a community that wants it to be an ultrasound money is a good property for an ultrasound money to have, right? Like an asset is more effective as an ultrasound money if it has a big portion of its community talking about how that asset is ultrasound money because that community talking about the ultrasound money meme itself make like basically makes it be part of the social contract and makes it more likely that things that are supportive of that asset becoming ultrasound money will be implemented and things that are opposed to that asset being ultrasound money will not be implemented, right? Uh, so I think uh, just ETH gaining uh, kind of legitimacy um, through this uh, kind of like self-created ultrasound money concept is uh, definitely a, a thing that is um, happening. Now, of course, I mean, legitimacy is always something that's uh, different in different communities. And I think uh, there definitely is a cultural difference between the Ethereum and Bitcoin communities, right? Because I think Ethereum people are more accustomed to like valuing Ethereum based on the f its future, whereas Bitcoin people are much more accustomed to valuing Bitcoin based on its present, right? Like I've uh, I've expressed this before as uh, Ethereum people think Ethereum, oh sorry, Bitcoin people think Bitcoin is eighty percent complete. Ethereum people think Ethereum is forty percent complete. Um, and like both sides are comfortable with that and think the other side is crazy for like taking the opposite choice. Right. Uh, and, and so like, at least within the Ethereum community, like the fact that there is intent to do 1559 and the proof of stake switch and to, to bound issuance and all of this stuff is already enough for them. Right. Like it's the intent and direction of the social contract. That's even the most important thing. Whereas I imagine to the Bitcoin audience, like until it's implemented in code, it doesn't count. And maybe that's fine. Like, uh, I think. I think they, they almost feel like Vitalik until it's implemented, coded and like uh -huh. 20 years have passed. Yes. It's not fine. I think, yeah, I think that's uh, definitely true. Yeah. Like uh, Bitcoin people are definitely just um, like less comfortable with the concept of social contracts defining a direction instead of defining a permanent state. And the Ethereum social contract for at least the first 10 years of its existence, you know, the last few, the last six and, and the next few as well, like is one that defines a direction, right? The social contract has included proof of stake and sharding from since before the Ethereum blockchain launched. Uh, and now, over time, I do think that the Ethereum social contract is going to switch to one that's more of maintenance. Um, and that's just something that like has to happen over time because once we do have proof of stake, like there isn't a proof of something that's even better than proof of stake that we want to switch to. And once we have sharding, well, like if we want more scalability, you just add more shards, right? Like, and so like there isn't, um, you know, something even better that you want to like make big fundamental economic upgrades to after those upgrades are done. 
And like once you, you once we have uh, proof of the sh sharding and proof of stake, like we have well what I call um, functionality escape velocity, right? And so anything that you want on top, you actually can implement with layer two protocols. So there's less need to make further changes to layer one, right? So for those reasons, I do think that the Ethereum social contract is going to move toward a being a stabilizing one instead of being a uh, directional one over time. And once it does that, then I expect like uh, a lot of uh, the Bitcoin people that are more comfortable with a stabilizing social contract are just going to slowly accept Ethereum as being legitimate. And I think like Ethereum successfully completing its two biggest shifts. Uh, so the EAP 1559 and the introduction to proof of stake and like possibly sharding as well. Like that's is the thing that's going to actually sort of do most of the work in uh, convincing them basically. It's funny to me because it seems to be the case that if g given issuance policy is fixed and the security issues that result of that, Bitcoin is going to have to revert to its social contract to decide a direction in the future. Mm -hmm. You know, you talked about three possible paths for Bitcoin, increasing issuance, mm -hmm. um, you know, l letting transactions essentially take a long time to to process or reverting to some proof of stake, proof of work. You know, so it's it's almost like it's all social mm -hmm. consensus and social contract at the at the base layer anyway, and there's no such thing as completely immutable like code that doesn't change. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely social contracts all the way down. Um, and you can have different kinds of social contracts. So like you can have social contracts that like prescribe more rigidness. Like you could have a, a social contract that says, um, you know, if a block cannot be verified by this ZK Snark verifier, where the the GitHub hash of the code is zero x five a one c eight four c blah blah blah, then it is not Bitcoin or it is not whatever currency. Where like you could be really really strict and try to like define a piece of code as being the social contract, and that's good for preventing change. But then the problem is like, well, if the code even has a bug, then um, you know, like just any kind of technical um, unexpected situation is just going to cause huge problems for your community and possibly even, you know, lead to a chain split. And that's a cost you incur if you have an overly rigid um, social consensus. But if you have a social contract that just says, um, you know, we vaguely care about these values and we're just going to do whatever we, we need to do to implement those values, then that's something that's more adaptable to uh, just changes in circumstances and changes in technology, but that also is something that just gives participants in the ecosystem fewer guarantees. And especially if participants in the ecosystem just like have different views about what it actually takes to realize those values, right? And so there is this trade-off, like there is such a thing as social contracts being more rigid and social contracts being more loose and there's benefits from one and there's benefits from the other. And I think in general, like uh, blockchain social contracts should be more loose when a blockchain is new and still rapidly growing. And they should kind of just naturally allow themselves to evolve to being more rigid over time as a blockchain discovers what it's for. And that's perfectly fine. In my uh, episodes, with, in my other podcast, POV Crypto with Christian Corollas, uh, we talked about uh, this, this subject of social contracts when he was very adamant that Bitcoin is not ruled by social contract, it's ruled by math. Uh, but we actually came to an agreement when we uh, when when I proposed this alternative to him, where I said, um, "Bitcoin social contract is to not have a social contract," hmm. which 
kind of gets to what Bitcoin wants to be, which mm-hmm. is ruled by math. Mm-hmm. But still, like you said, mm-hmm. it's social contracts all the way down. Social contracts are unavoidable. The, the best thing that you could do, which kind of goes back to how a, a zero is a good shelling point, mm-hmm. uh, not, the social contract to not have a social contract is the best way to not have a social contract, mm-hmm. but you still have a social contract. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> In, like... That's a show clip, David. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's definitely fascinating. Like, I think you know, we all agree that like at the end of the day, there is a lot of like pretending going on. Like, you know, in reality, when quantum computers come in, they are going to take some very uh, uh, kind of directed emergency action to protect people's coins. Uh, when mm-hmm. if uh, there's uh, some 51% miner that just like starts spawn capping the chain, they're going to take a very directed action to change the proof of work algorithm. And so there are these like things at the extremes that are obviously going to happen, but like this, there is this social contract of like, well, you know, let's like not even talk about the extremes and let's sort of like maintain the mindset that these extremes do not exist. And like for as long as that survives, like that, the, the idea is that just like, increases the social pressure against like forcing a, uh, a change by trying to claim that there's, that there's some extreme that justifies it. Uh, so it's interesting. Like it's definitely one way of uh, designing a social system, but I guess uh, you know, we'll see how it goes. Vitalik, I want, I want to back up and zoom out a little bit. Uh, a second ago, you were talking about how the uh, ETH can be money uh, if the community wants it to be money. And I'm reminded of, of mm-hmm. uh, I actually asked you the same question back in Tel Aviv in early 2020 when you were at a, on a QA, Q&A panel with Joe Lubin. Uh, and you, you had said something along the lines of how like um, the Bitcoin could take the monetary use cases of blockchains and Ethereum can take every, anything else. And I raised my hand and I said, well, I'm, I'm part of this crew that really thinks that Ether could be a really compelling money above and beyond uh, beyond Bitcoin. Hmm. And actually, uh, Ryan was really the first person to just instantiate. And it started just, I'm pretty sure, with the tweet, ETH is money. <laughs> and that meme just caught like wildfire. Uh, and to me, it became very, very obvious that at least there's this core group of Ethereum community members mm-hmm. who believe ETH is money and that ETH is money is legitimate. And that was a year and a half ago. And I think that the narrative around ETH as money, as well as the fundamentals, which is what backs up legitimacy, has really matured and evolved since mm-hmm. then. And so now that we are at this like uh, the early 21, 2021 phase with EIP-1559 on the horizon and proof of stake merge around the corner, do you think the world is ready to accept Ether as a brand new macro store value asset alongside Bitcoin in public consciousness? I would say it's definitely getting there. And I think that like to get the acceptance really up there, we, we do actually need to finish EIP 1559 and finish the merge and like get to the point where, um, you know, the system after um, all of the big changes is running and it's stable and people see that it's stable. Um, but like, it's not gonna, I don't, it's very hard for something to gain legitimacy while there's still this roadmap to like change everything. Um, a few months into the future. Like, I do think that we are already getting some of the benefits. So like, for example, um, you know, people have been talking a lot about environmental issues of uh, proof of work, right? And like, I mean, I think that issue is really substantial. And I think like it's, 
there's actually a lot of different externalities um, that are pretty negative from a proof of work, right? Like people focus on electricity and in some ways electricity is even one of the easiest ones to like argue against because like, oh, you know, we have solar power and oh, we have all of this power in far off places where sometimes it just gets wasted already. But like you have to remember that in addition to the electricity issues, which uh, um, there's also the hardware issues. Hardware is a huge portion of uh, a mining costs. I mean, last time I made I had checks, it was even something like two thirds of them. I'm not sure exactly what the percentage is now, but like hardware is uh, very environmentally unfriendly to manufacture. There's also like displacement issues, like work that's being done on producing these these things is being done instead of uh, work that could be done by the computing industry to make things that benefit humanity more. Um, you know, gamers are having a hard time not getting a piece uh, or ha dealing with a reduced supply of uh, PCs. Um, and then, you know, with ASICs as well, like if people weren't working on Bitcoin ASICs, what other kind of ASICs uh, would they would they be working on? And proof of stake does actually solve these issues. And so I do think that the uh, Ethereum is gaining some uh, kind of like at least the beginnings of interest as some kind of alternative because people see that this is a shift that's coming. And, you know, basically, if it, you know, it is a sort of do or die thing, right? Like, you know, Ethereum is going to either complete the switch or it's going to die trying. Um, and that's uh, so like. The fact that that roadmap exists and the fact that that roadmap is looking more and more credible now, now that we have a running beacon chain, now that we just finished the, the, the Berlin hard fork and we're, we're literally on the finish line to 5059 and then after that we'll be on the finish line to the merge. You know, the fact that there is a hackathon implementing the merge uh, uh, happening right now, the, like those things definitely are contributing and those effects will just like become slowly more and more real in people's minds over time as the event gets closer. And then the event happening by itself will obviously be a really huge flip. Uh, so that's going to be interesting to watch. Yeah. People forget that legitimacy, uh, particularly for institutions like public blockchains and the store value assets that they might represent, uh, I mean, this is going to take years to play out, mm -hmm. many, many years. And we are so early in this. There is, it's almost a sense of like, there's no rush. It would be unhealthy to me mm -hmm. if the world suddenly adopt these things as store value assets, mm -hmm. like overnight, right? Yeah. This has to happen in a gradual way. Mm -hmm. uh, Vitalik, thank you so much for sharing all your thoughts on legitimacy. I think this is going to be uh, a fantastic mental model for people to try to understand what's going on in this space. I want to end with this question. It's 2021. We are in still the first half, but getting close to the second half. In the grand scheme of things, how would you characterize this era of Ethereum? I think it's like the era where the yeah, ecosystem is like really growing up and starting to enter its uh, phase of maturity. And I think it's happening in a lot of ways, right? Like it's uh, happening because. Uh, the road, the technical roadmap is uh, finally at least uh, seeing its first major pieces get finished. It's happening because um, scalability is uh, finally looking months away from actually happening. Um, it's um, happening because we're actually seeing applications uh, of uh, like serious uh, value and uh, to not just the crypto community but to the mainstream starting to emerge. Uh, the whole 
NFT thing, I think, was um, actually really interesting for Ethereum because it actually is the thing that sort of started giving Ethereum some legitimacy in its own right. Right. Like before uh, the NFT thing, I think people mostly talked about Ethereum in reference to talking about Bitcoin. Right. You know, there's you, know, you have an article about Bitcoin and you just mention, you know, oh, there's also these other cryptocurrencies that exist. And then there's this thing called Ethereum. And then there's, you know, this thing called Cardano. And then there's this thing called Pickup Truck Dano. And then, you know, you keep going. Um, but um, And they're all the same thing. They're all just these other cryptocurrencies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and with NFTs, like, you know, you actually have a reason to talk about Ethereum without reference to, um, you know, talking about its big brother, um, which is uh, interesting. Right. So then even aside from NFTs, there's other things um, happening as well. Right. Like there's just more people experimenting with ETH as a payment mechanism. Like we saw the announcements from like I think it was PayPal and some of these other like, you know, big U.S. companies. They're not just accepting Bitcoin. They're accepting like Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Ether and Litecoin at the same time. And like I, I think that set of four is just fascinating because like legitimate like the sort of like holdover legitimacy by continuity that uh bitcoin cash and litecoin just like get that allows them to be accepted is just like so fascinating and interesting to observe um but uh, like seeing that start to happen is uh really interesting and uh you know i expect that uh, like applications are going to continue to mature once uh, scalability is ready um, then the applications are really going to go into overdrive. And then once the EIP 1559 and proof of stake is uh, complete, uh, including the merge being complete, then, um, you know, the ultrasound money thing will, instead of like just being a, a technical goal actually becomes real. And seeing that happen at the same time is just going to be really interesting for the ecosystem. Absolutely. We are at an exciting juncture for sure. Uh, Vitalik, thank you so much for sharing this with us from a macro perspective. It definitely feels like public blockchains, Ethereum, crypto as an asset class is entering the world of legitimacy. And this decade is going to be super exciting. So thanks for hanging with us today. Thank you very much. Ryan. Thank you, David. Cheers. Action items for the bankless community. We've got some reading assignments. Make sure you check out Vitalik's post. The most important scarce resource is legitimacy. That's where he goes through the details that we talked about today. Also, read one of his Reddit threads. This was a, a brain dump that he made on proof of stake versus proof of work. I think after listening to the ultrasound money post, a lot of great comments from the community there too. And then we've got almost like a Vitalik bankless anthology brewing. <laughs> there are a few episodes where Vitalik went through why proof of stake, designing Ethereum, his reflections on 2020 and crypto and beyond. We will include all of those resources for you in the show notes. Of course, guys, risks and disclaimers. This is not financial advice. ETH is risky. Crypto is risky. So is DeFi. You could lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone. But thanks for joining us on The Bankless Journey. Mm -hmm.